Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is the 21st of August, 2020. Before we jump into the show, a shout out to this week's top tier patrons who include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Edge Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, and Mark Zabrowski. If you want to help support the shows, head, of, head over to patreon.com forward slash pacebrothers. Now, two weeks ago, I ran a competition for you to win a copy of Modern Huntsman, and all I asked you to do was share the podcast with a friend on social and tag me so that I could see. The winner picked at random was Corey Welling on Instagram. So congratulations, Corey. Shoot me an email, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, and I will get your choice of volumes one to five out to you. And if you would all like a chance to win your own copy of Modern Huntsman, you can do that simply by heading over to at Byron J. Pace on Instagram and uh, follow, follow the account. And I'll have a look at all the people who have followed over the last two weeks and pick somebody at random. Okay, I think uh, that's it. We can dive straight into the show with Lorne Ramoni, a professional hunter and outfitter based in Tanzania. I caught up with him a few weeks back when he was in Texas. Lorne, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. You are normally, if I was trying to speak to you, you'd be somewhere in the thick bush of Tanzania. But right now you are in Texas, so we're in pretty close time zones to one another because I'm also in the States. Uh, You've been recovering from coronavirus, I think, haven't you? Yes, that is correct. Um, I've actually, I think it's been just about a month I've been in in complete quarantine. So finally out of the woods and feel great. Um, So yeah, just uh, glad that I'm feeling better. This isn't going to be what this podcast is about because we're going to be talking about conservation, particularly in Africa. Uh, But I'm curious to know, and I'm sure some of our listeners will be as well, given that you've had it. And we all know that everybody's symptoms are different. It just basically depends who you are and how you react to it. But what were your symptoms? How did you feel? Did it completely floor you? Um, It didn't didn't floor me completely, which was uh, interesting to me. You know, I'd read so much about what to expect and I guess for me, some of the signs or some of the symptoms that really kind of caught me off guard or at least made me kind of think that I could potentially have corona was it started very mild for me. It started with just a, you know, very almost like a tickle, like I needed to cough, but I never would actually cough. And after a couple of days, it it obviously got a little bit more severe. And every time I got a tickle, it morphed itself into more of a dry cough and then you know, quite an aggressive cough. Um, so that's how it really started. And then this hasn't happened to a lot of people, but I got um, real severe nasal inflammation. Um, and it wasn't very mucusy. And every time I'd blow my nose, it's not like I would have a whole lot of mucus. It was just like my nasal cavity was, was very inflamed. Um, I, I never got the fever, which you know, a lot of people have, you know, one of the main symptoms that they look for is the, the fever. Um, I did get 
very bad headaches for some time and a little bit of muscle pain, I think maybe for one or two days. Um, I never got severe chest pain. I never got sore throat. Um, I never had diarrhea or vomiting. So on the most part, I think my symptoms were were very mild, but I didn't feel great for two or three days. I really felt um, unenergetic, um, lethargic, tired. But in terms of the respiratory problems that a lot of people have encountered, I think maybe three different times, I think, um, I remember where I had some sort of resistance, where I felt some resistance in breathing. And then I got up and I got lightheaded. But and I had a slight shortness of breath, but it didn't last very long. So I think on the most part, I've had it pretty, pretty. You've mild. got off it quite lightly. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty mild on the most part. I just, you know, I, I sat in, hunkered down, uh, did my quarantine. And like I said, I think it's been a month now. I was cleared about a week ago, but, you know, just as we learn more about this, just trying to be respectful um, to people, especially being in the city, I've, really try to, you know, uh, stay away and, and really try to stay indoors as much as possible. Because you're in Dallas, aren't you? Yes. And I'm, I'm like right in the middle of the city. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, uh, that's tough. Uh, especially when you know that you've, you've got it or had it, you're, you will be extra cautious. Do you, was there any possibility of you giving it to anybody else? Um, not from, I mean, you you never you know the thing is we're learning so much about this virus and i don't know in terms of they call it viral shredding in terms of when you're actually um i guess prone to giving it to somebody else yeah when you're I contagious think, yeah yeah i think i caught it literally when i first started feeling symptoms which i was already in quarantine at the time so um i don't see you know, I really don't, I can't think of anybody. I, the only person I've been in contact is my wife and she's, she's a nurse. And so as soon as I was sick, um, she obviously had to step back from work, but this whole time it's been a month. She hasn't, you know, she hasn't gotten any symptoms whatsoever. Oh, amazing. She's almost clear to go back, back to work. Now that could mean one or two things early February, she got really sick with something like the flu. So we almost think that she could have potentially have had it back then before, you know, this became a huge issue. Um, and she actually, they wouldn't test her for Corona at the time. She had a sore throat, really bad coughing fever. And I was actually marketing at the time and, and wasn't at home. And she ended up going to go get checked and she tested negative for the flu. And so they just thought, okay, well, you might have a, a sinus infection. They gave her azithromycin which is a z-pack and um i think they gave her a steroid shot and a couple of days later she was feeling better so you know that's the only explanation that i can think of or she just i don't know her immune system is strong and just has been able to fight it off so it's uh you know that's the only person that i've been in contact, in contact with, so. with yeah it's interesting i know that they they actually went and um tested people who had come in with with flu symptoms and were tested for flu in seattle way back in early january and when they retested those samples more recently a lot of those people actually had coronavirus yeah that's exactly right i think i think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is when i guess in china when they found out that you know the coronavirus was a thing 
and you know they were learning a lot about it. I mean, this was late November, if I believe, into December when the world really started to hear about this this Wuhan virus, the COVID nineteen or whatever it is. Um, and what people don't realize is with the way how connected we are in the world with with flights and everything, and how small the world is. That virus was all over the world come beginning of January, and we've been living oh, absolutely. with it. We just, you know, now we're just aware of it because of all the news we're given and, and with how much they're testing and stuff. Like you said, earlier in January, February, there's some samples that have come back now that have been, you know, consistent with corona. So it's a, it's a very, you know, it's very interesting. Of course, at first I was scared because I didn't know much about it. And, you know, and I'm sure everybody is because, you know, all we hear is is negative stuff. But um, I've been in contact. Fortunately, I have quite a lot of friends of mine that are, are doctors, and a lot of the input that they've given me, which is what helped me get through it, was keeping positive and keeping a positive, uh, I guess, having po- positive mental health and not reading negative posts and not reading negative news, trying to stay positive, um, keeping your immune system strong, drinking a lot of water, vitamin C. Um, that is the only thing that as mankind right now that we have in our favor or, you know, there's no vaccine, there's nothing. So the only thing you can really do is keep your immune system strong to fight it. So, you know, that's, that's all I tried to do even after I got it. And, you know, um, I've seemed to come out of it fine so far. So, and, and I think I know at least 20 people, which is more than most. Um, I think once you test positive and you start talking to people, um, I think people are a lot more okay with telling you what they have, but you're not going to hear much because people feel each other out and don't really want to tell people that they have it. So I uh, think that's probably the reason why I know a lot more people that have had it and have come through it fine. So, Well, I'm glad you're well and better. Now, I, I started this by saying this, this podcast isn't really going to be about coronavirus, but in, in a funny kind of way, it is. Uh, because we're going to talk about how the current state of the world is affecting conservation, particularly in Africa, uh, where where you have an interest and a, a very in-depth knowledge. But before we get to that, I think it's important that you paint uh, an overarching picture of your family history in Tanzania. Uh, I'm, I only know little pieces of it myself, so I, I'm fascinated to really get to grips with how, how that all started. What, what generation are you that uh, is carrying on uh, the hunting operations in Africa? So um, I'm actually fourth, uh, I'm fourth generation. So, um, you know, my great-great-grandfather started. Um, now, a lot of what people know about hunting in Africa, you've got to remember that, um, you know, in the early days, hunting was different. It wasn't, it, it was somewhat of a business, but like when you read Hemingway's books and, you know, Salu, you read so much of what hunting was to them. It was experiencing and it wasn't really a business back then. Um, it was all know, about that, expeditions, wasn't it? It was, yeah. it was new world, it, well, exploring places that people hadn't been as much as it was about the the hunting aspect. Yeah, 100% and that's that's really how hunting really started. You know, I mean, for as long as as we've known and we followed mankind, we've always been hunters by nature and um it's something that in in every aspects of our life, even if you don't call yourself a hunter, we do in in 
in, in many different ways. Um, but to go back to my, my family, um, like I said, you know, when my great, great grandfather came out to Africa, it was for that same reason, just, just like you said, it was to experience, it was to see, it was to feel, um, and where, where had he come from? Where, where was he from before he moved, went there? So, so he's from, he's from Italy, ah, okay. Italy from Milan. Um, and so that's really, you know, when he came to Africa for the first time, that's where his passion for Africa grew. And he introduced my grandfather, um, Tino, Valentino Ramoni, uh, who came to Africa and he was actually, he studied medicine and became a doctor. And because of growing up and spending time in Africa, he grew such a passion for it that he wanted to spend the rest of his life there. And so he picked, you know, his, his father was, you know, very aristocratic, came from a very good, um, a very good family, but his passion was Africa. He knew that. And he took his degree in medicine and started in Kenya. And, and that's really where it really started. And, and so he started it as a business, bringing a lot of his friends from, you know, and this was in Kenya, he moved to Kenya and, Back then, you know, Kenya was incredible. Now we talk about Kenya and it's, you know, ever since they, they stopped hunting in Kenya, you know, they've lost 90% of um, the wildlife that they had. So, you know, so when your grandfather was there, is that sort of what, 40s, 50s? Yes, that's about right. Yeah, yeah. 40s, 50s was, was when he was there. And um, it's interesting because a lot of the you know, wildlife areas that you hear of now in Kenya, which are now national parks like the Maasai Mara, you know, my grandfather hunted there. My, my father, when he was 12 years old, he shot his first lion in Maasai Mara. You know, times were, times were so different back then. Um, over the course of my life and as my, my father grew, um, all he knew was the bush. He spent all of his time in the bush with his father and, you know, he never had the chance to really go to university. And so he had to make the most of what he had in his situation with his path, with, with his passion. And so he grew up in, he grew up in Kenya, your father. Yes. He grew up in Kenya with, with my uncle and, um, my aunt and, and later on his mother and my aunt moved back to Italy and my, both my uncle and my father stayed and, and, you know, kept their roots in, in Kenya. And then, Obviously, after Kenya shut down in terms of hunting, um, they looked elsewhere, and, and Tanzania obviously was the closest. And you know that's where my dad really um, found his love for Tanzania, and that's where he really decided to. That's where he wanted to build um, and you know begin his legacy, so to speak. Mm. Do have you got much of a a handle and a feel? of that period of time around when Kenya closed down all the hunt, hunting operations? Because up to that point, it had been one of the go-to destinations on the continent. I mean, I mean, it was, it was different. I mean, all the photos that, you know, I look at and I try to live vicariously through my father's stories and through his pictures and, and to read about what Africa was like, and particularly Kenya, because you know, so many of the stories and, and, you know, hearing that the wildlife was everywhere and there was black rhinos everywhere, um, you know, is, is incredible. And to think now, you know, I, I was born in, in Nairobi and in Kenya and I've spent time there because I still have family there. But it's 
amazing to see what it is now compared to the stories of what it was. Um, and that's something that's, that's sad. Um, you know, listening to all the stories that my father has and to, like I said, to think of what it's become now. And, and that really, I mean, if, if you're looking at the time period, it's really ever since they stopped hunting in Kenya, it seems like the decline in wildlife has been rampant. The human wildlife conflict has really increased. And it's, you know, it's, it's, the correlation is there. It's just, um, like I said, listening to these stories, seeing the pictures and then seeing what it is now is quite, um, is quite disheartening, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because the reason for them closing it down in the first place was because of the, the rapid rise in poaching, particularly elephant poaching at the time. I think it was, I think it was Richard Leakey, possibly, who was the head of the wildlife department there back in the 70s. Who had? Oh no, maybe that was before his time. Actually, that it was it was shut down. But I know that there one of the main catalysts was because of this creep of of poaching, particularly for ivory across the country. And their feeling at the time was that if they were to hut, shut down all hunting, and we were talking about legal hunting, that this would somehow alleviate the issues that they were having with the illegal poaching of game. No, that's a that's a hundred percent right. I mean, you know, that's what that's what their intentions were. That's what they thought. Um, but like you and I have discussed before, you know, it's we look at Tanzania that you know they started, you know, the hunting equation. They started doing what we call um, commercial hunting, just because you know having outfitters run a business, we call it a obviously a commercial business, um, but. You know, um, I think of what Tanzania is now in comparison to Kenya in terms of wildlife, you know, wilderness areas that are still preserved now. Um, I think I mentioned to you in Tanzania as a whole, we've got upwards of, you know, 186 hunting concessions. Um, all the national parks we have in Tanzania in total make up maybe 15 to 20% of, of the total wildlife areas that are set aside for wildlife conservation i think the hunting areas make up over 65 percent so if if you think of what happened in kenya if you were to take away all these hunting areas which is 68 percent of all the habitat so to speak and you were to say okay no more hunting we would be exactly where kenya is now because there would be nobody policing that land there would be no value whatsoever given to that land um you know we all i think when we all think of africa especially people that have never been what you hear about most of the time is in botswana the okavango delta the Kruger. yeah for sure you hear the serengeti you know you hear tarangiri lake manyara but you never hear of 95 percent of the wilderness areas that are being protected um but because they, they, they don't have this fame, they, it's not a place that is, you know, frequently traveled by lots of tourists. People seem to forget that they exist. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting, but, you know, it's important to note that there's so much more wilderness habitat out there that, you know, that's still managed and that still needs to be given a value, you know. The, the land that would have previously been held on lease as hunting concessions in Kenya 
when that was no longer possible, what what happened to it? Because that was it was government owned and then leased to private individuals to run as a business. So when all of that stopped, what did that land get used for? Right. So the one thing you've got to realize, like I said, is everything is about value. And so when that value of wildlife or an ecosystem is taken away, the government as as a government entity needs to try to find a way to utilize and give that land value. And because of whatever we want to call it, political reasons, economic reasons, the government decided to give it to the people, um, you know, whether it was for, you know, um, farming, whether it was for agricultural purposes. And that's really how it started. And when you look at um, human wildlife conflict, or you want to look at, let's just say, overpopulation and the rate at which the populations in Africa are growing, it's kind of easy to see that as soon as, and you see it anywhere, as soon as people move close to an area, it's very, the destruction that's caused is almost immediate. I mean, when you cut down trees to make make room for for agriculture or for cattle or whatever it is, I mean, you know, you're destroying huge tracts of land. So that's what happened to a lot of these areas. They just went to agriculture. They went to people. And at that rate, you know, when we talk about conservation, we talk about the total biodiversity. It's not just the wildlife. It's the plants. It's every single aspect of that ecosystem. And, you know, once that that has destroyed the trees, I mean, it's almost irreversible at that point. It's years and years and years. And of course, you have to remove the people in order for it to get back to normal. So that's really why and how it happened. My understanding of a a lot of the areas um, that used to be, for for want of a a better phrase, wilderness areas uh, in Kenya is that they are now largely populated by vast cattle herds. I think that's that's a very much a, a cultural thing that most people probably don't understand. I'm not sure if you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So in particular, obviously a lot of um, Kenya and most of northern Tanzania, we have the Maasai tribe that are a nomadic tribe. And yeah, I think most people, even if you've never been to Africa, will have a picture of what the Maasai are like. In their, in their head, because they've been uh, in a lot of documentaries like Nat Geo Docs before. Right. Um, yeah, so I think most people would be familiar with them. Um, and, you know, they were, you know, very traditional and they still they still live like they've lived for generations. They haven't, you know, they haven't, uh, they haven't changed at all in the way that they live. They live off the land. Um, and the Maasai people as a whole... Um, they're not very destructive in sense of in the sense of wildlife, but what they do because of you know all their their livelihood and their lives revolve around the cattle. That's how you know that's how they it's run. currency for them, isn't it? Yeah, it's currency. That's exactly they use it for trade. They use it for milk. They use it for whether it's meat at certain points. Um, but again, they don't really they don't really survive off a lot of protein. They don't really eat a lot of their cows because again, like you said, it's their currency. And they don't really poach a lot, the, the Maasai's themselves. Um, they live, you know, and they're nomadic, so they pretty much go where they, where they please. And, you know, in Tanzania, we've got the Maasai, and then we have the Waskuma. And the Waskuma, probably the, in terms of population size, they're probably the largest tribe in, in, in all of Tanzania. And they're very similar to 
the Maasai in the sense that, you know, their currency is cattle. So over the years, between the Maasai and the Waskuma, the population of cattle in Tanzania has absolutely skyrocketed to the point where they're running out of grazing grounds. Um, there's almost, you know, especially during the dry season and when there's lack of water, they're having to go into national parks, they're having to go into these wildlife areas, game reserves that, that hunters preserve. Um, and that is a major, major, major issue. And, you know, that sparks a lot of what we call human-wildlife conflict because, you know, the, the parts that are – we have a large population of Maasai, we have almost no lions left. You know, you might get the odd nomadic lion that comes through, but as you know, that's their currency. And if the cattle get killed by lions, you know um, – that's where the conflict starts and they have to eradicate that problem. So, you know, these are all the, you know, these are the things that, that are becoming really the major issues in the Africa that we know is human wildlife conflict, the population growth, and then obviously the, in, you know, domesticated sense with the cattle, that's also a major issue. Yeah. It's a, it's a really hard, um, it's very, very difficult to try and work out how the inertia of that, the culture and heritage around that can be changed and whose place is it to try and shift that? Because quite clearly from the picture that you've painted, that what is happening there and from the, the knowledge that I have, it is not only detrimental to the wildlife because of this the vast amount of um, heavy pressure grazing that is going on over the, across these countries, but it will in the long term, and I know that it's already being seen there. It's detrimental to the indigenous population themselves, Absolutely. Uh, especially over periods of of drought when the those issues are exacerbated. How how is that problem resolved? Where there's uh, a respect for the need for indigenous people to gain something from the land that they're from, but at the same time not do it in a way that is detrimental to that landscape when it's something that is so embedded in the culture uh, and almost part of the fabric of who they are. Right. Um, that's a... You know, that's a very complex question and it is a very complex answer. I'm not necessarily expecting you to be able to answer that, but it's one of those things that I think is important to, to pose because what we have in the Western world, I think, being guilty of around the world, you know, whether we look at North America here or whether we look at Africa, is to view uh, conservation um, as a mechanism where wildlife and ecosystems thrive to the detriment of people. Right. And we, we've seen that with, with national parks around the world where the idea of creating these parks and, and reserves and national parks or whatever title they've been given, depending on the country, is first to remove people from it. Right. And, and, and you know, the, the question you posed is, is, is interesting because – like you said, you know, a lot of a lot of the way that they live is traditional. And, you know, whether it's us as hunters or the government, we all try to work together to find the perfect, what we call perfect balance. Everything is about balance and equilibrium. And um, 
it's it's difficult because, like I said, you know, the, the population of cattle is increasing, the amount of size is increasing, the amount of wilderness area is decreasing. So a lot of the places where that are rich with resources, um, you know, the cattle finish all the feed. There's overgrazing, there's erosion, there's no more food, and they move. And so eventually they move into these these game reserves. Now, a lot of what we do as through the hunting equation um, is we work with the communities um, and with the Maasai's in particular, um, just because of their traditions and the way that they live. Um, and a lot of it is educating, um, educating them the importance of preserving these wilderness areas. Um, but at the same time, you have to provide value. They have to get a value out of what we are doing there. Um, you can't just tell somebody, look, you can't come into this wildlife preserve because, you know, you guys are going to reap the resources, A, B, C, D. It just doesn't work that way. They have to see how they benefit from the equation. So, you know, a lot of what we do is based around what we call community development, which is building dams, which is something that they can obviously use outside of the preserves. Um, you know, building churches, building schools, um, hospital dispensaries, um, distributing mosquito nets. One of our biggest um, foundations is our wheel, wheelchair distribu- distribution because um, there's obviously a lot of people that don't have, you know, wheelchairs and medical supplies. So, you know, everything that we do runs around the community because these are the people that depend on this land. Um, and so, you know, you're trying to find the perfect balance of saying, hey, we need to protect the wildlife, but we also need to keep in mind that these are the people that depend on this land. and you know, like I said, everything is a symbiotic relationship. We need to work together if, like everywhere in the world, if we are going to have a future and we're going to preserve what needs to be preserved. So just to take a step back, because I, I want to make sure it's very clear in people's minds as to how this works. So we're talking about um, Tanzania here now, yes. uh, where most of your operations are. So the government put up for lease areas uh, which are which we refer to as concessions and then you as an outfit or, or any other private individual or business I'm assuming uh, bid for those those leases those concessions so initially there was no initially there was no bidding so you didn't bid you just kind of said okay I'd, I'd like to take this area there was no actual uh, what you would call in like an auction sense there was no bidding for areas you just applied for areas and as long as you had good standing in terms of, you know, if it was a new company, they didn't really have much to, to go by. But, you know, like now if you want an area, they look at if you've conducted good community development, if you maintain your areas well, and they look at a lot of different factors. But, yes, you were given these leases for whatever areas that you thought that you wanted to basically take over and manage. And, and these areas are – it's only a temporary um it's like it's temporary ownership for the resources because the the land is still owned by the government is that correct yes that's absolutely right so nothing is actually owned by the outfitters we basically just lease the land the wildlife belongs all of the resources themselves belong to the government so um there actually is nothing that we actually own we just come in to manage that ecosystem so to speak Okay. And the, the, so I suppose from the, the government's point of view, this is their way of maximizing the economic value while at the same time benefiting the people who live there. 
Absolutely. So, um, you know, by having these leases, we pay them X amount, which is what we pay them in order to be able to to manage that ecosystem for a year. And usually we have, I think the, the leases usually run up to about five years. And so give me, give me an idea of the kind of work that you do on, on an area that you've leased. Right. So um, it, it all, everything starts, if we really look at it from starting from scratch. Um, yeah, like a, to paint a picture for a place that, um, you know, maybe a new concession, a new area that you, you've, you've taken on. I imagine you arrive there. I know that I, I know from having been there, some of these places are so crazy remote. It's a charter in and then maybe a day or two driving across barely tracks to the place where you might set up a temporary camp. So how did your communication with the, the local communities go as a starting place? Because they might have not seen anybody for years. Right. Um, and, and that's a difficult part because you come into an ecosystem that does have a lot of movement of of people, um, just depending. You know, if a, a lot of these areas weren't looked after and as a result, people kind of, there wasn't really any laws governing movement and such. And so a lot of people were illegally cutting wood or poaching or fishing illegally or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, having come into these areas, everything you're starting from is from scratch. Um, some of these areas are anywhere from 400,000 acres to over a million acres. So, I mean, you're looking at a serious chunk of, of land. Um, and so a lot of it is, a lot of it you're trying to do is research. You're trying to get um, a feel of how big the area is, uh, the geography, the wildlife, um, you're trying to, as quick as possible, you're really trying to build some sort of infrastructure, which if you think about it, um, there are absolutely no roads other than um, f- footpaths or wildlife tracks that go to watering holes. So um, if you want to just think of the the financial obligation to come into a remote area, and like I said, some of these places are two, three days drive from a, a town like Arusha, which is, you know, basically one of the main hubs in, in Tanzania, um, you've got to take vehicles out there. You've got to get, you know, whether it's a bulldozer or a grader. So, you know, you're having to get serious machinery. A lot of it's done by hand. Um, and again, us being new to these areas, we need to work with the communities because a lot of these people that have spent time in the land know it the best. So in order for us to better know it, we employ a lot of the people that have spent their time there. Um, so whether it's trackers or, you know, just everybody that works in the camp, you know, we take them from these local communities surrounding the areas. Um, so like I said, just the financial burden of just getting everything started, the infrastructure, and then you start really the management of it, which, you know, getting research, trying to figure out how many lines you have on average or how many buffalo. And then from there, um, you know, you work on starting anti-poaching efforts, which is a 365-day-year challenge. I mean, that's something that you know, local communities are hungry, you know, they need to eat, they have a lack of protein. So, you know, you're not, you've now got this land that's now governed by hunters, or at least being protected by hunters, and people that once had the free for all of, of being able to poach animals, are, are now being told, hey, actually, the government has said, this is the law, you can't poach, you can't cut 
timber illegally. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult. But like I said before, it's important for people to realize that it's a symbiotic relationship. We don't come in as outside people and say, hey, look, we are going to do what we want to or reap the resources. It's, hey, guys, look, we need to all work together. We need to educate you the importance of what we're doing here, what we're trying to accomplish. At the same time, make sure that they see value, which is, you know, whether it's through providing them with protein or alternative ways of producing protein or water or, like I said before, medical supplies. The the relationship with the communities is everything because that the main picture is we're trying to preserve these these wild expanses, so to speak. So the, the extraction of resources, be that uh, timber or game, would have always been uh, restricted and governed by by the government. But in these very remote areas, there was no way no way to police it. So that's not. Uh, I don't know if I'm correct in saying that, but I'm assuming that that's the case. Um, it, it wasn't a situation where it was perfectly legal before. It's just that there was no one there to tell anybody that they couldn't do it. No, that's 100% right. So when all these areas were set aside for wildlife conservation and were either made game reserves or open areas or whatever it was, at that point, the law was set in stone that it was illegal to reap whatever resources, whether it was to cut wood or whether it was to poach. There are some areas like open areas where they're given in the off-season um, limited permits to cut down a certain amount of wood or to go fishing in certain areas. But poaching as poaching is has been illegal from the get-go. So we didn't come in there and enforce our own law. That was the law kind of set in stone by the government. We just abided by the law and just tried to find a way that wasn't so harsh where we just came in and said, hey, guys, you guys can't be here. It was more trying to find a better approach, which was seeing the value and working with the communities and, and trying to curb the poaching and the desire to come in and, and really, you know, cause destruction in the areas. So through the through the clients that you bring in from different parts of the world to come and hunt in these areas, you use some of the the funds of that to provide economic replacement for communities that were otherwise using the resources because that's the trade-off you work with us you will then get meat or employment so you no longer need to go and cut down timber or set snares for poaching yes absolutely that's 100 percent right and that's that's how the what we call the hunting conservation equation that's how it works um you know of course everything everything needs to have a value and you know, to look at it before these, of course, they had a value to the local communities, but the wildlife wasn't benefiting at that stage. Just people that were hungry were getting the protein they needed, but the resources were being reaped to the point where when we got a lot of these areas, there wasn't a lot of gain. You know, some of these areas we've managed for upwards of 25 years. And to look at what we got and what they've become because of our equation, our hunting equation is is pretty incredible. So it shows that the equation itself works in terms of, like we mentioned before, working with the communities. And obviously, you know, the wildlife needs to have a value. Um, you know, we need to have some way of bringing monetary value into these areas in order to be able to pay for the anti-poaching efforts, 
for the community development efforts. And, and, and so we really have seen that the equation has, has been very, very successful in Tanzania. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to think about it uh, in this way. If you take it as given that the indigenous people of, of any place around the world have a intrinsic right to benefit from the land, it's about providing mechanisms for people to benefit in a way that can also be sympathetic to those those ecosystems. So you can it's very easy to understand in my mind why with growing populations we've ended up in a situation in many parts of the world where there's been decimation of um, flora and fauna because that is the mechanism that currently exists. It's purely extractive. Whereas what you've been explaining is a way that wildlife and the ecosystem can thrive while the people who live in the area are also able to benefit. And you're doing that by pulling in resources from abroad. It's, it's foreign dollars that allow this to happen. Absolutely. And, you know, one, one interesting question that I'm actually asked quite a lot is people always, always look at alternatives. And that's one thing I've always been asked is, okay, well, look, you've got, we understand that hunting generates the revenue for you to look after, but aren't there other alternatives to managing these areas? And, you know, people obviously look at, at photographic safaris. Now, a lot of the areas that have been set aside to be national parks were set aside to be national parks because they were viable at the time, which means that they had an, uh, what I call a very diverse ecosystem with a great biodiversity. There were no tetsis. They were very easily accessible. They had a large concentration of game. A lot of the areas that we are managing, um, for somebody that's a, you know, a, wants to go on a photographic safari, is you'd spend half a day in the concession and say, get me out of here. And that's <laughs> a lot of the areas. Yeah, they can be pretty hospitable. Yeah, I mean, they're very harsh. You know, the terrain sometimes is very harsh. The brush is very thick. The tetsi flies are rampant. It's, it's, very, it's a very harsh Africa that people, it's very hard for people to understand because they go to the Kruger and it's, wow, it's a breeze. It's beautiful. You see a lot of game. You know, hunters see a value in something that, not a lot of other people do. And it's more about the experiences and, and really being on the ground and, and something that's tangible. You know, people can go out and see, uh, you know, some of our hunters can go out in a day and see a handful of animals and they're happy because they've experienced. Whereas, you know, photo, photographic safaris, people are so used to, you know, not being bitten by tetsis, you're confined to the car, but you get to see lions every day, you get to see leopards every day. And and that's really not the reality of of all these other areas. Um, so it's it's interesting because I've been asked that question quite a lot, and it, I think it's important for people to realize that that ninety percent of Africa is not what they see on National Geographic. It's it's a very it's different. I think it's it's important uh, to point out that I can't think of a, a single outfitter that I know who would say that photographic tourism doesn't have a place like that's a it's a very important component of conservation oh absolutely it, it, absolutely and that's not what you're saying no not at all all i'm the, the point that i'm trying to make really is everything has a place because conservation is conservation and you know all my point is is that if 
you know, looking at, at these areas and what they are, it would be very difficult. You know, if, if you had people that either had lodges or had the opportunity to build lodges and conduct photographics, all I'm saying is that they would probably, you know, a million times say, I'm, I wouldn't, I wouldn't set up a camp in there or I wouldn't conduct because I wouldn't have a business at the end of the day. And like I said, what runs everything is giving something of value in the parks. Like I said, the biodiversity is there. Like the crater, you go into the Ngorongoro crater in Tanzania and you'll see lions multiple times a day. You'll see elephants everywhere, but that's what people expect when conducting photographic safaris. My point is that, you know, to, to take the alternative and say, well, look, what if you stop hunting and make those areas that you hunt photographic areas my point is just that they wouldn't be viable for photographic safaris yeah sure you bring up lions and i think it's uh, it's something i would like to dig into a little bit with you uh, because tanzania has such a robust population of lions and that is not something that is true in every country that had a historic range of lions in africa why why has that been and has it always been the case was there a population recovery it's a very controversial and extremely controversial subject when we also mention lions in the same breath as hunting. Right. Um, the truth of the matter is, no matter where you look in Africa, lions are declining. There is no doubt about it. It's more that, you know, when people say, okay, the populations of lion are, are you know, going down or reducing, so to speak, they say, okay, well, it has to do because of human wildlife conflict, it's hunting, and it's all these different things. But, you know, I've lived in Africa my whole life. And some of these areas that we've managed um, over the course of the years, um, and I've been in, in Tanzania for, for 30 years, so I've, I've been able to see a lot of changes. Um, the areas haven't reduced, I mean, in terms of, of how many areas they are to hunt. You've got to remember, like I said, if you've got 186 hunting concessions and let's just say on average each one is a minimum of 500,000 acres that's a lot of land and that's a lot of range for lions lions as we know are are nomadic on the most part you know prides move in a lot of places in the world they're restricted to where they can go because of populations they can't they can't all the migratory parts have been cut off whereas in Tanzania you have got a lot of movement of lions from one side to the other because of so much of this ecosystem that is hunting concessions and national parks. I mean, you've got so much um, ecosystem in the whole of Tanzania for lions to still thrive. But ultimately, they are, you know, the population is going down because of human wildlife conflict. I mean, you know, just the other day, one of our anti-poaching units was called into a neighboring village. Um, and the villagers had just killed a lion. They were about to kill the whole pride because they had eaten some cattle. And we were able to get in there. One of the things that we do is we try to give them incentive and give them a monetary value of the cattle they lost so that they don't kill the lions and feel like they need to. So, you know, that's a perfect example. In a scenario like that, we could have lost eight lions in, in the course of one night. Um and we ended up losing one. But that is the reality of why the population of lions has gone down. You've got local communities that are pushing right up to game reserves, up to national parks. 
because of competition or you've got an old male that is struggling, you know, to, to kill for himself or you've got... It looks for easy prey, which is cattle or donkeys to, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, they move to the villages and they start preying on easy, which is, you know, you might get a, a somebody who's drunk and, you know, to try and think of the reality of Africa, these are rural areas. They live in the bush. They're just little huts and little villages in the middle of the bush. So, you know, lions are definitely... Um, definitely on the decline but it's not associated to hunting like if you look at uh, the regulations as a whole if if we weren't in our hunting concessions we'd be losing so many more lions to local communities we wouldn't be able to intervene we wouldn't be able to like i said um set up whether it's paying them the monetary value of losing their cattle and incentivizing them not to kill the cats there would be no there would be no way of doing so um, you know, a lot of these lions that are old and, you know, can no longer hunt, you know, when a lion gets kicked out of a pride, the, the reality of Africa is all animals die a painful death. There's not a lot of animals that die of old age. It just, it, it doesn't exist. Uh, That's not the natural like, world. Yeah. He's not going to go to a quiet corner and live out his days until he, he kills and <laughs> dies. You know, he gets eaten alive by hyenas when he can no longer hunt anymore. Yeah. So, you know, these are the type of lions that we really focus on in terms of management perspective. Um, mm. and, and that's where the value comes in. Instead of a, a lion being killed in the village and nobody benefiting from the equation, you've got somebody that gives that animal value and says, okay, well, now we've got the resources to continue to protect and for these lions to thrive. So in our areas, I mean, we've seen in, in certain areas, I mean, it's not uncommon to see, you know, I don't know, lions seven, eight times a day, and we're actively hunting those areas. So, you know, when you're looking at it, you're saying, okay, well, hunters are decimating populations or, you know, they're reaping a resource. But if you value something, you don't, you, you can't afford to let that you know, dwindle away and die. If anything, you want to make it better. You have the, you know, you guys, you have the greatest incentive. I think this is something which is quite misunderstood uh, in, by many people is that if you are benefiting from a resource, you're the person or the company that has the greatest incentive to make sure it can exist and pr- uh, proliferate in the long term. And to some point, it doesn't even matter if that is your only selfish motive. If your only motive is that that is a resource that you want to be able to reap, the underlying uh, principle of that is that you want to make sure that it continues to to exist and thrive. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, like like I said before, the 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 major issue in Africa as a whole, and that's really where this whole equation starts, is that. Overpopulation is a problem. The domesticated cattle situation is a major problem. And that's something that's not, you know, populations are still continuing to grow. And so all all that is happening is wilderness areas are becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. So I look at, you know, when we talk about Cape Buffalo and we talk about antelope, they bounce back really quick. But when we look at animals like elephants that, you know, take a, a long time in comparison to grow to maturity um, and have a much longer gestation period, or you look at an, a complex animal like a lion that has a huge range and is a predator, you know, those are the animals that are, that are 
that really have to be handled with care. And those are the ones that are really affected from habitat loss and human encroachment. And so, you know, when we look at a management equation, um, you know, you, you're trying to keep an ecosystem intact. And that starts from a caterpillar that starts from a blade of grass. Like I said, everything is about its biodiversity. And, and, and hunting just ensures that we keep that whole ecosystem intact. It's, I think, something that, uh, just going back to lions, that is very easy to forget unless you just pause for a moment and think about it. There was actually, I had to chuckle slightly to myself at this. There was a paper that was released, I can't remember um, by which university, but it was a research paper by scientists looking at the movements and, and patterns of movements by lions. And the, the, the summary of the paper was that they were intrinsically linked uh, to the abundance of prey, which most people would think is a fairly obvious statement, but they'd spent a couple of years proving this, is that you it's not just about protecting the species. It's also protecting the species that, that they rely on to Absolutely. survive. Absolutely. Which, when, it, when you're talking about predators, is their prey species. And you can't have one without the other. No, absolutely. And that's, you know, when, when we look at um, why is woodcutting illegal in these game reserves? Why is fishing illegal in these areas? Because, you know, Again, a tree is extremely crucial. As you know, we know some of these hardwoods that are cut down, we know how many years it takes for them to grow to the size at which they're getting cut, you know, when they're finally getting cut down, you know, some of them 100 years, 120, 140 years. So we know that the good thing about wildlife, and, and that's why I tell people a lot of times the, the wood cutting and the deforestation sometimes is a lot worse because that is the ecosystem that they depend on, that the prey, that the predators, that everything depends on. And again, it, it can't just bounce back tomorrow. This is something that takes years and years, if not hundreds of years. You know, you can take a, a, a herd of Cape buffalo and say, let's reintroduce them into this area. And you'll see without predators or whatever, I mean, the population will go pretty quickly. But when we're looking at trees and stuff, you know, that's something that, you know, takes, I mean, you know how long that takes. Yeah. Yeah, it's not something that you can fix overnight once it's gone. No, exactly. it's when I've have discussions with people about hunting you know, big game. A lot of the issue that people have on the ground is a, a moral exception to it. So when you're looking at things like um, elephants or, or lions, and the conversation that I very often have is kind of what you were getting to earlier when you were talking about the kind of lions that you are trying to select uh, and hunt. And these are old um, members of a pride that have been kicked out and which will at some point perish because of their inability to, to feed. And I raise the point that would you rather that resource be used and benefit the other animals and the and the people in the air, area, or it to just you know fade into nothing and 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 of be of, of no benefit to um, to anybody? And it kind of raises it raises this interesting juggling act in one's mind about whether we have the whether we have the right to utilize resources and the lives of animals in that way right um and and you know I, i'm one of those kind of people that i always try to think of 
everybody's perspective. And having traveled all over the world, you know, of course I'm biased to some extent because this is my, you know, this is how I grew up. This is what I've known my, my whole entire life. But it, it's interesting because, you know, I try to explain to people, you know, every, like you said before, everything is so well researched, so well managed. The type of animals that are really being taken, like I said, are extremely old, like with, with lions, you'd never shoot a lion in a pride that had cubs. They have to be over a certain age, which is over six is, the, is what we call the legal age to, to harvest or take a lion. Um, and you're given very limited quota of lions. Some areas you only take one a year or two. And again, I go back to alternatives because it's important for people to realize that, you know, you, you might take one lion out of, out of an area when you've got a population of 150, 200, 250 lions in that one, one ecosystem. And some of our areas have all of those, that amount of lions. Some people, researchers say that we're left with an X amount of lions. But when I look at our areas and see how many lions that we actually have scientific data of that we, you know, upwards of 150 different lions, we see 200 lions in a year in one concession. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting because if, if that one line, if you take away the value of that one line and we were to just say, okay, let's pack up, let's pull out. How many lions are we going to lose when these lions push up against the boundaries and eat cattle? How many lions are we using because we are not present and we're not taking care of the rest? So, you know, it's, it's, it's wrong of me to say one is sacrificed to save many, but that's really the way to look at it. Um, the reality of Africa is what it is. Um, you know, we have to look at alternatives. You know, if we weren't there, what would happen? And that is the reality. Of course, from a moral standpoint, it's very difficult to understand because we have this attachment to these beautiful animals. And I'm a professional hunter. I've, I've done, you know, I've been a, a, I guess, a legal professional hunter since I was 18 years old and I'm 30 now. And I will, I mean, I'll tell you straight up that every time I have to take an animal's life, it touches me and I feel like it needs to, you know, it isn't senseless killing. It isn't everything we do as hunters. We put a lot of thought into that life that's being taken. The understanding of the sacrifice of that animal, so to speak, and what it is as a whole that we are doing for the environment, what the alternatives are. There's a lot that goes into your mind in one go. And I try to explain to people, you know, you talk about things that you see on TV. You don't live in Africa. You don't know what the reality is of Africa. You, you have killing in a sense that's done for you. You eat chicken every day. You eat cows. You eat fish that are farmed that live in all different types of horrendous conditions. And you're okay with somebody else making that decision and killing that animal so that you can eat, which in a way is that's for our own benefit so that we can eat. But with hunting, hunting is conducted not for me as a person in terms of, you know, this is something that betters something bigger than myself. You know, this is for the environment. This is for the survival of whatever species, because without it, the reality is there would be no wildlife. We would be where Kenya is. And, and there is no better correlation or no better example than to look at what's happened to, to Kenya over the years and to look at Tanzania right now and see how much more wildlife areas we have and how much more 
wildlife we have. Mm, yeah, no, it, it is a great comparison to make. Uh, I'm wondering, do you, uh, in your concessions, do you work uh, with any scientific researchers at all? Yes, we do. I mean, we've got a lot of, um, you know, obviously from the government that come in, but we've had we've had um, a fair share of private people that have come in and conducted research. And in terms of, you know, we started something long ago before it became the law, which was uh, aging lions and stuff, because we wanted to make sure that the type of lions that were being taken were were very old and past what we would call maturity and stuff. So well, well before, this is something that has become the law since now, but before this had even taken into effect, in terms of management, we had already come up with the the idea of making sure that we weren't causing any harm with the type of animals that we were taking, which was try to avoid avoid taking breeding males that are, that are, are breeding to try to take old males that are supposedly past breeding and that are on their own and kind of on their way out, so to speak. So we do work with a lot of researchers that, um, you know, collect different, you know, they put up camera traps or try to collect different data. And it's mostly, um, like I said, the more sensitive type animals, like trying to um, research elephants and lion movements and leopard movements and stuff like that, because they're obviously the ones that, um, you know, because of human wildlife conflict get affected the most. Yeah, I know that there's a there's one researcher in particular, Amy Diekman, who's based in Tanzania, uh, and she's her name has come up in the press a few times, like in the last six months, because of the discussion surrounding the trophy import ban in the UK. I mean, she has no real affiliation to hunting at all. She's a scientist, uh, but she has uh, been pretty vocal about the as it currently stands, the benefit to species such as lions um, and others in Tanzania, where she's based, as on the back of of hunting concessions and the importance of them, um, and I, I, she one of very few voices um, in that world of conservation who have been happy to um, take the flack for saying such things. No, absolutely, and it's it's a very it's a very positive message because. You know, we get a lot of people that really don't know much about hunting at all that come into these concessions. And, you know, of course, they have an idea of what they think in terms of, like you said before, the moral aspect of looking at at hunting and the taking of a life, so to speak. Um, but what's interesting is what they learn along the way and, and the the reality of what it is, is is unlike anything that they expect. They expect to go into an area that's somewhat like a national park where they see lots of game and stuff. Um, you know, they come in not knowing much and learn so much about the equation and, you know, the relationship between the communities, the anti-poaching, the wildlife management. There's just, there's so much that goes into it that I think a lot of people, even researchers that do research in national parks that they really don't get to see until they venture out into these, these what we call hunting concessions. I think something else that uh, has been brought up recently, and we've seen it in speeches by the president of Botswana and some of the press releases out of Namibia, uh, Zimbabwe as well, possibly, is this idea that there is an imposition from the rest of the world about how African countries should manage their wildlife when 
places like Namibia and Botswana and, and Tanzania have done so very successfully in the last few decades in comparison to, to some other countries like, like Kenya. What do you to say to that? Because we're very quick sitting in our nice houses in uh, North America or in Europe to impose our opinion about how uh, somewhere far away a long way from any kind of urban hub should be managing wildlife that they maybe have never seen before i think honestly i think it's i think it's very unfair to dictate how other people should be living their lives based off a moral compass or based off how you feel about something we we live in such a misunderstood world where nothing really makes sense any, any anymore the the world that we used to live in, in the world we live in now is so different. It's so complex. There's, there's, it's not black and white. There's, you know, there's so much to it. And what people see of Africa, which is photographic areas, national parks, you know, it, it obviously draws people close to it and they obviously get an emotional attachment to it, but they don't realize that that isn't really the reality of 90% of the rest of Africa. They don't get to see the local communi- communities that benefit from a hunting equation. All the people like, you know, we employ over 150 people. And if you look on at the minimum, each of those people has at least 10 other people, family members that depend on that income. So forget our company. That's just one company. You have all these hunting companies all throughout Africa that all have that same scenario. These are all local communities that a lot of these people didn't go to school. They don't have an education. Their their skill set as a tracker is only really utilized in the bush in hunting. You can't take somebody like that that hasn't been educated and put them in, in the real world. So for us to kind of dictate and say, well, you know, just because we feel like, you know, hunting is wrong and, you know, they don't like the idea of it is not to say that it isn't what the people of Africa want. And again, I speak from, I mean, you look at Botswana, the president of Botswana said, you know, these, the people want it open. This isn't just us as a government. We have people that are getting killed by elephants, people's crops that they depend on that are getting raided. People aren't getting the protein. And this was after a closure of hunting for a period of time. The people weren't benefiting anymore. The government wasn't benefiting. A lot of the areas were being destroyed, apart from the ones that were really rich in the Okavango Delta. But all the other areas that didn't have that same sort of biodiversity were not really being taken care of. So you have to listen to what people of that country want. How are they benefiting? This isn't just about how I feel, how you feel. And like you said, a lot of people sit in the comfort of their homes. You know, I live in Africa. I live and breathe it. I see it. I have lived, the trackers that I have worked with, I grew up with, they're my brothers. And all of them tell me all the time, like especially with the situation we're going going through right now, you know, trackers are saying, well, we don't know what we're going to do. Like we can't survive without you. And these are, these are part of our family. You know, it's, it's part of, so, so much more of a bigger equation that you can't just say because I feel a certain way that means that there shouldn't be any hunting. We have to look at facts. We have to look at research. You have to look at what people want and really what people need and, and what's the best for that country. 
Yeah, I want, I want to get to the, the current uh, global pandemic and how that's affecting you, which I'm going to just in a moment. But I just wanted to add to that that I think there's a global responsibility to make sure that whatever country we're talking about, that there is uh, that the, the practices that, that are in place when it comes to conservation are um, working, and that we can see that what has been put in place is going to help the, those ecosystems and the species which uh, live in them. Uh, survive into the future for next generations. But if countries around the world are able to prove that they are doing a good job when it comes to the conservation of the different biomes and the ecosystems that fall within their countries, then the actual practices that they employ to be able to achieve that should be determined within those countries because they understand them most. And I think that this is a this is a difficult balancing act for people to um, kind of wrestle with, is that uh, we all collectively on the planet have a responsibility for the long-term conservation of, of the species and, and the land and, and the habitat that these species rely on. But on the level of, of management within countries there needs to be a trust that people will the people in those countries and the governments and the organizations that work within them will understand them better than you will half a planet away and i think that that's that's the balance there we all rightly should be concerned about long term conservation but shouldn't jump to conclusions so quickly when we maybe don't agree with the practices if we can see that the benefits are positive. And before we change anything, we need to hold the status quo so that we can fully understand the implications of what change means. And that's uh, uh, the, the very base of scientific principle when it comes right. to uh, altering uh, current practices. No, absolutely. Um, you know, and and it's it's interesting because... You know, a lot of a lot of what we've given value, so to speak, a lot of these areas. Um, it's it's like I mentioned to you earlier. Some of these areas we've managed for upwards of twenty years. Um, I want you to think of the economy, for instance. You can see what's happening to the economy right now. That's you know the correlation is very similar in Africa in terms of these areas. You've got an area that's like a strong economy, and then all of a sudden, because of an, an issue like COVID nineteen the economy has been completely crippled and an area that's been managed for 20 years, it's now strong without management, without anti-poaching is exactly like the economy. It just breaks down. It shuts down and it will take years and years and years to try to get back what can be lost within a couple of months. And as most outfitters in Africa, that is our biggest fear with this COVID-19. It's not about the monetary value of running a business. I could care less about how much money I put in my pocket. It's not about that. It's about the, the blood, sweat, and tears that we pour, poured into these areas, that the, the relationships that we've developed with these communities over 15, 20 years, the things we've built, um, you know, the progress that we've had in these areas. And if there's no monetary value coming in, if, if there aren't people actively coming this year to hunt in Tanzania, 
where do we get that money to basically pay the local communities or do all the charitable things that we do that actually stops those local communities from from coming in and reaping the resources so you know that's where it all starts but you know that's everybody's concern is what people don't realize is that everything can can be reversed within just a couple of months of us not being op- operational so you know this really is the biggest test that we've ever been faced with because we're in a position where a lot of people where there's no revenue coming in absolutely no revenue and so how do you now subsidize this how do you how are you still able to work with the communities how are we able to conduct 365 days a year anti poaching every single day you know we've got vehicles breaking down we've got people's salaries you know um and we've you know we manage nine concessions so we've got it's a huge financial undertaking and a huge responsibility um and and that's really the the hardest aspect of what we're going through right now what have your conversations been like with clients who were due to be coming out in the next few months um or when does your when does your hunting season really get underway so tanzania's hunting season is from july 1st to the end of december so we've got okay. pretty much a, a six month hunting season so we haven't started actively hunting yet so a lot of our clients knowing the the burden that we have in the sense of how many people do you know depend on us in terms of employment in terms of community in terms of anti poaching a lot of them really believe in in what they're a part of and and feel so much a part of this equation that they're like look we know we're going through a hard time right now but we're in this together you know we're yes we're afraid yes we know this but hey if we can come we're coming because we know that you know this is something that's so much you know bigger than ourselves but at the same time it's not really about how they feel are they actually physically going to be able to leave the country you know nobody knows what the regulations are going to be within 2 or 3 months of how people what travel is going to be like so it's so difficult to depict but what's really been promising is how the community has come together and people really kind of understand the position that we're in and and how important this time is for us to really come together and really be there for one another um it's something that's not really about them or me it's about the wildlife and it's about the areas and it's about the local communities that really have no help it was this is something that came up uh, a couple of weeks ago when i was doing a podcast with levison wood he just recently wrote a book um that chronicles the, the the history the rise and fall of, of elephant populations in africa nothing really to do with hunting at all although i did ask he spent a lot of time in the delta and i did ask him about what uh, his feeling was from conversations of people in the in botswana in particular um and what they felt about hunting and w- which unsurprisingly as to, it'll be very unsurprising for you to hear the people of botswana were very supportive of reopening hunting uh but anyway i i bring that up because one of the the questions that i had for him was that has this current pandemic exposed the fragility of relying so heavily on foreign money and the, ne- the 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 necessity for people to have their feet on the ground whether that be photographic tourism or hunters 
going to a place, uh, we, obviously we were talking about Africa because his book was about elephants, but the same would be true in other parts of the world as well. And is there a way that we can uh, find other funding from other places that don't expose us in the same way? Because as you've clearly pointed out now, if you don't get, if it's not possible for people to travel this year, that means even with the best will in the world, so say none of those clients uh, pull, uh, all those clients say, you know what, we're just going to, let's just move that date to 2021. That doesn't change the fact that you lose, that all of those hunts now have to take place a year later. So you're holding on to that money, but you're now got a whole year's gap because you can't have double the amount of people hunting in a year. There's a limit to how many people you can you can host and to the a limit to the, the amount of animals that can be hunted in a single year. Is there a way that we can reduce the reliance on foreign money now that it has been very clearly exposed how fragile that system is? I think I think it's 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 difficult, especially from a hunting a hunting standpoint, because as you know, like the word anytime you hear the word hunting, how many people, um, even if you were to put a foundation together, so to you know, so to speak, and build a portfolio around there and try to show people what it is that you've accomplished, what you do, what depends on, you know, the revenue that's generated, so to speak. How many people that don't agree with hunting do you think would be into you know helping and the point that i'm trying to make is that you know conservation is completely split you've got photographic and then you've got hunting and hunting is obviously a much smaller community on the whole um you know we as hunters are very open to photographics because of course conservation is conservation to us um and so we get it but it usually is usually frowned upon the other, you know, looking from from an anti-hunter's standpoint. And so, to answer your question, to try to not be so reliant is is difficult because you need the revenue is needed. Um, um, has to come from somewhere. And with hunters, you know, they're happy to put the value because of the experience that they experience when they come out on a safari, so to speak. And so they feel a part of everything. They see it. They see, you know, the, the protein that's that's given to the villagers. They, they're a part of visiting the schools. Um, they actually are on the ground. They walk. They feel. They hear. They see, which you don't really get to see in a national park. You're confined to a vehicle most of the time. So, you know, you have the exclusivity to this area to where you really feel. So I think that's where the value really comes in is experience. And um, without having that experience, it's very difficult to kind of go outside of the hunting pool and say, well, well, where do we get, where can we subsidize the money, the revenue? Where is it going to come from? And, and that's the most difficult part because it is needed. Um, you know, there's no ways, even national parks can't, you know, they're not sustainable without, without constant cash flow coming in which is no they're not no you know tourists coming in it's it's all the same without revenue these national parks they can't maintain the roads they can't pay the ranges they can't protect those resources that that they're set out to protect so it's a it's a very complex and very difficult um very difficult for me to answer because i've i've really thought about it hard and 
you know, it's it's like I said, it's difficult. Where else would that money? Yeah, how, how do you how do you replace that economic value? Yeah, you need. I don't know whether in the in the future maybe we need to have sort of fluid systems in place where. I mean, this is such an unusual circumstance that we find ourselves in right now, but where there can be systems that allow local community to benefit from, you know, so say food is, you know, food is a daily need. So whether that's uh, the ability to harvest in a regulated way a number of game of certain species in an area in order to compensate for the fact that now there's reduced employment in the area because you're not able to operate because there isn't foreign clients coming in. It was just something that was running through my head is how do you put uh, these or how do you create circumstances for local communities where they can still benefit but not be detrimental to those ecosystems and the species without actually having the cash in your hand from another country? Yeah, and you see that is part of the problem. I mean, realistically, we we know what the reality of Africa is. To try to impose something like that, so to speak, you know, even if the government says, okay, we'll we'll start saying, okay, per family can can take, you know, A B C D animal, and it's going to cost them this much to get a permit or whatever it is, or even, you know, people don't realize how many local communities there are that neighbor these areas. Um, you know, the ecosystems are fragile. How do you now monitor each individual that comes in there and takes an animal? You've gone from, you know, uh, maybe taking a maximum of, let's just let's just call it um, fifty animals in a concession a year. To now, you know, trying to feed thousands of people—that's thousands mm. of animals. It's just, it's yeah, crazy. the math doesn't doesn't work. It doesn't. So it's not viable. It doesn't work. It would cause create chaos. And how could we monitor it? Monitor it. We don't have the money to to protect those resources anymore. So it's basically a free for all. And who comes in? And you know, like that's my whole point was without us being there in these areas. What's taken us years of management, you know, years to get these populations of animals back to where they should be in a healthy ecosystem, that can be undone within less than two or three months. You've completely devastated an ecosystem. And I know that sounds extreme, but that is the reality of these areas and, you know, the situation that we're facing. So they're really, for us, without having that economic engine, without having money coming in, it's impossible. I mean, like I said, even with photographics, it's the same thing. How do, what, what is going to maintain these areas? Like in Tanzania right now, there's absolutely no commercial flights coming in. Obviously, nobody's even thinking of photographics, but now you've got all these vulnerable photographic areas that need to be maintained. They need to pay the rangers. They've got their own anti-poaching. They've got, you know, infrastructure that they need to take care of who's paying for this where's the money coming from a a government that relies so heavily on the economic value of tourism because it's one of the biggest industries in tanzania how are they going to subsidize it they can't so you know we face ourselves in a very very you know this is a, a very fragile situation that we're in as a whole Lauren, this has been a, a very insightful and intriguing conversation. And I think it, it really will 
um, open people's eyes to what's involved in managing these vast areas in in very uh, remote and rural locations in Africa. Um, it's like you say, it's um, it is a a complicated system, and it is there is not one answer. Uh, it, it's a lot of moving parts. And I, I really wish you guys and all the other outfitters and all the people who live in these uh, these r- remote rural places the best of luck in the, in the next couple of months as we hopefully pull ourselves out of this global lockdown because I know it's going to be incredibly challenging. Uh, well, really, I really do um, appreciate it. And like I said, I know it's difficult, you know, over the course of a podcast to try to cover all the bases and really try to get a, a rounded idea of everything in the whole equation. Um, like you said, it's a very, it's very complex and um, it's not something that everybody would understand right off the bat. And, you know, as, as hunters, it's never like for me anyways, I never tried to convert or impose my way of life on people. I just try to give people the facts. I try to educate them and just show them that maybe if they're open-minded, that there is a place for it, that, you know, the reality of Africa is very different. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to accomplish is really the same thing. All we want is to preserve our world, our ecosystems, the few wild places that we have left, because that really is, you know, the most natural, the most beautiful thing that we have left on earth that we're really trying to keep, that we as humans really haven't interfered with and haven't destroyed. So um, like I said, I really, I really appreciate you reaching out and um, yeah, thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure. Maybe, maybe at some point in the future when we can fly again, the next podcast we do can be from the field. Cause I think that would be very cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've talked about this with a lot of people and it's one of those things. It's like anything. It's very easy to talk about something it's very easy to write something down, but the visual aspect of things is extremely important for people to really understand things and see what's really happening. And, you know, just to put, you know, all the narrative that we basically, everything that we've talked about today is put a, a an image behind it, put film behind it and for people to really see that, look, actions speak louder than words. This is really what's happening. This is the dynamic. And I really look forward to it and hope that you know sooner rather than later we can we get can get to that point so that we can we can get out there and experience it and really share it with 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 the world i never need much of an excuse to go back to africa so (laughs) (laughs) you take it as a given if the opportunity arises no it's 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 funny because i talk to everybody and you know i've been very blessed to live two different worlds. Like I told you before, I, I came to university. Um, I went to TCU in Fort Worth. And so I've been very blessed to to basically live the best of both worlds. But, you know, there's something about Africa, a, a magic that, that really, that really, you know, really puts you under its spell. You know, it's hard for people to understand unless you've been there and you've seen it, you've felt it, you've immersed yourself in the culture and, you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's special. And, um, I hope that we're able to sit by a fire together and share some more stories and share some experiences together in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I I was just about to sign off and I just had this final thought, uh, because Peter Beard just 
passed away or he was found dead sadly a couple of days ago and i wondered was he someone who ever came through your camps do you know um he he traveled through but not not since we've had them obviously i mean this was a long time ago but you know some of the places that 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 he visited are some of these ecosystems that we're still trying to preserve today so a lot of what he saw then you know we're we imagine that we're seeing some of what he saw and a lot of people, you know, conservations, conservationists all across the world. I mean, it's been a huge loss um, to lose somebody like Peter Beard, having seen the world in the way and, and captured it in such a way and really told his own story with um, his stories of Africa through his images. And he's somebody that, you know, I don't think anybody is going to forget. Um, and um, like I said, you know, condolences to to his family, but incredible that he's touched so many people's lives from all different walks of lives and, you know, all, all across the world. Um, so, you know, all the images, all the things that he once saw is exactly what we're trying to preserve today so that, you know, those images aren't just images. And I remember in, in, in his book, there was something interesting that he said. He said it wasn't about conservation, but it was about preservation, you know, um, in, in preserving, you know, the natural state of the wild, of what, we, what was the wild and, and what is the wild. So, you know, um, again, you know, huge loss. And, you know, I just I really hope that what he was able to capture will be able to continue to experience and the rest of the world will be able to experience I hope so. I mean, there, there was never anyone like him before, and I, I'm not sure that there'll ever be anyone like him in the future. No, uh, but yeah, sad, sad to see his passing. Yeah, he was he was so ahead of his time in you know in a true a true artist, but you know so much. I mean, that doesn't even do it justice. I mean, when you read his book and you look through his images, to have captured images the way that he did at that time is just you know it's just incredible. So. You know, just a, a huge, huge loss. As a homage to him, when I get home, the first thing that I'm going to do is pick up the two books of his that I have at my house and just, I don't know, maybe pour myself a brandy and Coke and <laughs> flick through them another yeah. time. Maybe light the fire. Yeah, absolutely. Just pretend like you're in the bush, you know, maybe. Put, I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah I'm going to like, smell uh, the wood smoke and, and uh, taste the flavor of brandy and yeah. look at some of Peter Beard's images. No, exactly. Well, listen, Byron, I really appreciate it so much. It's, been, it's on, honestly been such a privilege to. No, great conversation, Lauren. Yeah, to be on here and, um, you know, appreciate everybody that that you know be listening listening in on this and um yeah i really hope that like i said we're able to you know this is the start of of something you know something bigger hopefully we can get out there and um you know right now we're confined to the comfort of our homes behind um a computer but you know hopefully we can do it face to face over you know gin and tonic you know absolutely you know (laughs) absolutely now just just as a final sign-off, if people want to um, see your, your outfit and what you're up to, where, where where can people do that? What's what's the website? Do you have any social media? Yeah, so um, Tanzania Big Game Safaris is um, the Instagram um, social platform that we have. Uh, both of our websites, both our our um, conservation foundation trust, it's it's the CFT fund. 
Um, that is basically our conservation fund and goes through all the community anti-poaching type stuff that we do. And then we have um, uh, tbgssafaris.com, uh, which is, you know, again, our other website. They're both under um, construction right now, but they should be operational shortly. So, um, you know, just That's difficult great. time for everybody trying to, you know, get ducks in a row and trying to rebuild and and it's always you know difficult trying to find a platform and trying to find the most polite way and respectful way of sharing content with people and i think we really need to be mindful on you know especially on social media and on the world that we live today is so close that you know we really need to be respectful of how we share content yeah, no, that's very, very true. Lauren, I'm going to let you get on with the, the rest of your evening, but thanks very much for taking the time. I really, really do appreciate it. And um, like I said, I hope we can we can be, we can see each other soon and, and have a nice gin and tonic around the fire. Thanks very much for listening. Join me in a week's time when we take another walk into the wilderness. <laughs>